HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Erin French is the owner and chef of The Lost Kitchen, a 40-seat restaurant in Freedom, Maine, that was recently named one of Time Magazine's World's Greatest Places and one of 12 restaurants worth traveling across the world to experience by Bloomberg. She has garnered attention in outlets such as the New York Times. Her piece there was one of the 10 most read articles in the food section the year it was published. Martha Stewart Living, Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, and Food and Wine. And in addition to too many wiles to list, Erin French has just published her first memoir, Finding Freedom. I interviewed Erin at a webinar sponsored by Women Who Empower, a network of strong, creative, and innovative women and men launched by Northeastern University a decade ago. First, we're going to hear a short clip from Erin French, and then we'll get to the live conversation. I'm Erin French. After spending years trying to get away from my small hometown of Freedom, Maine, I not only came back to live, I opened a restaurant. There's a lot of people are all outside. Are we ready? My kitchen family and I had no formal training, no idea what was going to happen. But we trusted that everything we needed was right here. And soon, people were coming from all over the world to visit us. Every week is a new story. New ingredients. Bottoms up. It's delicious. New diners. <laughs> New challenges for me and the team. The only constant is, it's home. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to Erin. This is so exciting. I have been marinating in your book. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have been reading about you and thinking about you for low these years. I'm in Massachusetts. You're in Maine. It feels like very close, but it turns out that freedom is further than anybody thought. Erin, 
it is just such a pleasure. And I have to tell you, I reread last night the part of your new book where you talk about setting up this sort of assembly line to behead all the chickens. And I don't think I've ever in my life until that moment ever wanted to behead a chicken. But you made it sound wonderful (laughs) and delicious and so so fun. fun. Wow, I'm glad because that can be a hard, that's a hard chapter for some people. (laughs) I have a kind of overriding question. You've written this book, you've created this restaurant. We read in the book about the influences that you felt held you back, some of them with the male figures in your life, your father or first husband. But really, you've been somebody who invented yourself from the get-go. You didn't go work in someone else's kitchen or around the world. Tell me how you think that whole confidence of I'm just doing it and I'm writing the playbook myself played into becoming Aaron French. Are those figures still in your head when you make a decision or, or do you feel like my gut tells me I'm right, I'm going forward? I find that I, I actually listen to my gut first than my head. I feel like my head would overthink things and maybe would send me in other directions. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about logic and your brain telling you to do those things. <laughs> how it kills dreams. If you actually think about the logistics and the probability, what your brain would do, then it would talk me out of a lot of dreams and a lot of feelings and things. Cause I started to do impossible things that shouldn't be possible, like opening a restaurant run by all women in, in the middle of nowhere. And if I had listened to my brain, there's no way I would have done it. So a lot of times I can just feel in my gut. It's a feeling of, does this feel right? Does this feel honest? Does this feel good? And and then I let that travel up to my brain and go, okay, yeah, that feels right. <laughs> go with it. A very intuitive and instinctive person. Why did you want to open up about all of this now? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, a, that's probably the number one and a very good question. And there was something that was burning inside of me. I felt this, this need to tell this story. And I remember when I went to pitch my literary agent who I had my first cookbook with. And I called her and said, I want to pitch another book. And she's like, great, great, great. And then I told her what the book was, which was a memoir. And it completely shocked her. She was like, what? What? <laughs> like, I was thinking you were going to pitch another cookbook. Why this book? Why now? And I realized because there were little snippets of my life that people had come to understand or had heard through news articles or kind of gotten even a bit of it through my first cookbook, which gives little stories throughout it. And I had a lot of people reach out to me and say like, wow, that empowered me. That made me feel stronger. Like they recognized that I had been through some challenges. And I also realized that going through those challenging times and now seeing the other side and being on the other side and having this wild success for people to understand that this wild success came from darkness and came from a really challenging time. And then it took those challenging times to get right here. I wanted other people to take that message and understand Mm -hmm. that sometimes life isn't this perfect line. That's just easy. Sometimes you have these ups and you have these downs and it's your journey and what you learn along the way that takes you there. So I was hoping that this book would give others inspiration to sort of dig deep and follow dreams and and maybe even not feel so alone when you're in that darkest place that you feel like you can't dig yourself out of, that you could read this book and feel that you're understood. It's an incredible story of drive and passion. It really is. And I mean, as I read the early chapters of your book, where you were talking about, you know, your father, just as you said, would just say, you figure it out. And they were these incredible things that nobody would ask. Nobody in my, in my experience would ask a young girl 
to figure out on her own. Go figure out how to drive the truck. Go figure out how to fix this. Do that. Run the grill. When you think about it now, does it make you angry? Does a smile come to your face when you think back on those things? Did, did the book help you get to a different place in your soul? There's nothing like going back and reliving hard moments. And that was another reason why I wrote this book. There was a bit of a gift to give other people to share this experience. But there was also this need for myself to go back and relive moments that I was still angry about or still in pain about so that I could just come to a point of forgiveness and understanding and recognition that that it took those moments and, and all of those actions to get right here where I'm now living this good, rich, lovely life that I worked really hard for. I've really gotten through a lot of pain and anger and hurt through putting those words down on paper. It's just, it was completely cathartic and um, to just have that release. And it really finally released on the day that the book came out because it was all this nerves and this tension around it. And when it came out, it was like this big breath of like, okay, it's out there. And you can love me or hate me for these words and who I am, but this is who I am. And let's just move forward. Did you worry that and that the people that you wrote about would be upset, would change their relationship with you, that it was too raw, too honest? Did you self-censor at all? There were definitely moments where I considered relationships and I considered if they were relationships that I wanted to mend and move forward with, or if they were relationships that I wanted to let go and have forgiveness with. So that was the difference. And, and that was hard. It was hard to write about other people and share my own experience without giving away their life story of why they are the person that they are. And you know, I know a lot of people wanted me to write about my sister more. And that was a painful subject because there are things that are her personal story and her journey. And she should write her own book on how we got to all of these places. That was a very, a very tricky thing. And I had to think about those relationships carefully mm-hmm. as I was, as I was composing every word that I was putting down on paper. So the book came out recently and you haven't yet, you haven't had diners in your space since the book came out. Do you have this sense that everybody who comes into the restaurant now is going to be looking at you saying, oh, <laughs> we know everything oh. now, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of that moment of like when you realize like there, there's, there's nothing left to tell. Everyone knows everything. And I'm okay with that now because I would rather have everyone know it and make their decision. Like I said, if they want to love me or they want to hate me on the journey that I've been on, that it's better you know exactly who I am so you can make that decision. <laughs> You're like, okay, you're coming here for my food. I'm a food person. Here is my life. Experience my catharsis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I remember those days when I, I felt like I couldn't even walk into the grocery store in, in the town next door. It, it was it was challenging. And go, if anyone's been through a divorce, you know that it's completely a, a life devastation. And can you tell us a little bit about your process of writing the book? Because I think for people, they're just kind of agog that in addition to everything else you do, you found time to write a memoir. How did you discipline yourself and organize your time to do it? After a brief pause, we'll be back with Erin to ask her how she found time to write her memoir. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. 
Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back with Aaron. It was funny the day that the book um, arrived here before it came out and I got to hold this 300 page book in my hands and I was like, oh my God, you did it. I mean, I don't know if some of you all know this, but I went to Northeastern <laughs> and I, I dropped out of Northeastern. So <laughs> I didn't even finish college. And so some days it's like, how did you do this? I discovered just a few years ago that I enjoyed writing and it was something that that came to me. And I realized that it was it was kind of the way that my brain worked. And I just sort of thought of it like writing when I compose dishes at the restaurant or I put together menus. It's the same creative process where you're thinking about elements and you're thinking about there's a start and there's a finish, there's a first course and there's dessert and there's the story in between. You know, when I got the contract, it was like, all right, you have to write a book that's 88,000 words. And I couldn't understand like, (laughs) what is that? Like, what is 88,000 words? Like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? And then I really started to think of it in these smaller bites. Instead of an entire menu, think of it as dish by dish that makes up an entire like prefix menu. And so I thought of them as essays and I would sit down and I would close my eyes and I would take myself back to these places in my life and go there like so deep and rich that I could smell the smells and taste the taste. The same like as I'm thinking about what I want to cook for dinner and how all the ingredients are going to work together. And then I could start to compose it on paper. So that that was part of my approach to keep it so it didn't feel so daunting. (laughs) And then you would come out of that session and feel like totally drained or? Yeah. Oh, gosh. I can tell you many days when I would finish writing an essay, depending on where I was in my life. And I would have to warn my family as I would come into the kitchen to start to make dinner after a day of writing it. And I would have to warn them what year I was currently in in my mind. So if I was so (laughs) grumpy, it was probably like 2004, (laughs) you know, whatever year I was in, that's what they were going to be feeling that emotion for the rest of the evening. And I would pre-apologize before I'd start dinner (laughs) for my demeanor. Oh, I totally get that. You were in the zone. Did it affect your cooking as you were writing? Were you kind of doing um, kind of this is my life through food as well? Oh, I mean, maybe a little bit. I think, um, I, I always have this feeling like you can't make good food if you're angry, like if you're going to taste the anger, things are going to be like tense and everything's going to be tough because if you're, if you're feeling that way, you're sort of putting that into your food. So I probably fed my family a few crappy dinners over the process of this book. Sorry, guys. I'm guessing they weren't so crappy. 
<laughs> crappy being a, a relative term. So you worked for how many months on writing the book? Um, well, I, I did the proposal one winter and mm-hmm. then I pretty much took an entire uh, winter. Well, actually starting from October until the end of August. That's how long it took me. And I knew I had the time off from the restaurant and I would just sit down and, and go for it. I, so I, I had to really just pound those pages and having deadlines was helpful. When I read the book, and I'm sure this is true for everybody else, we all closed the last page and said, ha, we've been on a roller coaster ride with this woman. Now that it's a year or so beyond you, have you been able to look at it again? At, at, the, at the book? and Oh, yeah. The funny thing was I, I had never really read the book from start to finish as being the author. I had done all the pieces and I put them together and I, and I even wrote it out of sequence because I knew that I could patch it together because it actually happened. It was my life. So right. I put it together and I could write the end before I wrote the beginning and everything in between. I had to sit down and I had to do the audible. And I did it this winter through COVID. My husband set up a, a sound booth in our upstairs bathroom, our upstairs closet that was above the bathroom. So he couldn't even flush the toilet downstairs if I was recording. And, you know, we had to like silence the dog and keep everyone quiet. And it was the first time that I had sat down to read from the beginning to the end of the book. It was a roller coaster ride for me, even. I would get a 10 minute break on the hour and I'd go downstairs and cry and then I'd go back upstairs and pull it together and read a few more chapters. That was especially cathartic. It's like you wrote it and then you sat down and you read it and recorded it. I can't imagine how tough that must have been. Incredible. Well, Erin, one thing is let's talk about your food a little because your food is incredibly unfamiliar and incredibly familiar at the same time. I was looking through the cookbook and thinking, huh, one thing that distinguishes these recipes is that they're not complex. So when I read a recipe that doesn't have a million ingredients, what it tells me is that there's an incredible level of skill involved. How did you evolve for sort of such simple but nuanced dishes? It's so seasonal. It's so fresh. It's so wonderful. It so speaks to where you live. But when it comes down to it, it's sort of straight up cooking. Mm. Did you ever feel that you needed to be something that you weren't in your food? Oh, for sure. I mean, when I first started to make a go at this, I mean, I really didn't decide on trying to make food my life until I was 30. And at that point, it was kind of too late to go to culinary school. My parents weren't going to pay for tuition then. And I was still paying off my Northeastern loans, I think, even at that point. And um, (laughs) yeah. There was a year when I thought I had to go down this path of being fancy chef and figuring out how to do sous vide and how to do all these other fancy techniques. Then I came to realize that I started just to make these comforting dishes that seemed to resonate with people and started to think like, well, maybe I don't have to do that. Maybe I could just make the food that I love and maybe it just could be simple fish and a beautiful puree and end it with a really nice rhubarb cake. And maybe that's what people really want and want to feel. And And for a while, I I was really downing myself on my cooking and thinking like, are they going to find me out? Am I going to be busted for being like just this simple (laughs) cook? Like they're coming all the way out here and they're expecting this meal of their life. And like, I'm like a very simple cook. I can't even make a great omelet, but I can do certain simple things in a really lovely way that, yeah, I can make a good cake and I can make, cook a perfect piece of fish. But I did have this fear of like, that I was a fraud because I was making simple food and I didn't have great knife skills. That took a while to get over that, to be like, it's your food and you can own that and you can feel good about that and you should celebrate that. And now I'm just embracing it. And the one thing that's really pushed me as a cook is that we work with seasonal food. 
And the fun thing for me is that I never write a menu and then go grocery shopping. I always build my menus around whatever the produce list is for the day that's, mm-hmm. that's coming in from the farm. So it's like, I get this toolbox and then I go, okay, my challenge is how do I put these items together and how do I make this delicious meal from this? And then the other big pusher was the fact that people started to come to this place in the middle of nowhere from around the country and around the world, <laughs> expecting now the best meal of their lives from someone who has no culinary training, has terrible knife skills. And it, so it really started to push me as a cook to say, how can I grow? How can I evolve? How can I make better dishes? Because the expectations were rising, whether I liked it or not, whether I asked for it or not. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really big kick in the pants to just to keep moving and keep being creative. And, and because the last thing I wanted to do was to let people down when they walked through the doors and sat in my dining room. I wanted to give them the best meal of their lives. I, I just can't imagine the pressure of thinking that people are now coming for the best meal of their lives. <laughs> with all of this, with all of the the Aaron French celebrity ambient, how, how do you keep staying so authentic? How do you how do you talk yourself through it? Well, um two things. One thing has really been the word no, <laughs> which is a very powerful word. I thought for a while that I had to follow this path of like, if you want to be a good cook, you have to go on these certain shows and you have to do this certain thing. And when I realized that I could just say no and not do those and not go on Top Chef and not do any, I did one competitive show and that was my lesson. I was like, never do that again. That did not feel good. (laughs) It was not authentic. And I knew in my stomach, it just, it wasn't me. So really making those decisions of not growing this place to be bigger. And I mean, we could have opened a dozen more restaurants, but I knew that that would lose the magic of this place. And the other thing that really helps is being here in freedom. I'm in a town, I live in a town that is very much unchanged, that still the dirt road that I grew up on is still a dirt road. And there hasn't been a new house that's been built on that road in 40 years. There's nothing flashy here in freedom. So it feels like you can be yourself here. Well, I guess that's what's so important for people to remember that you're a creature of where you are. That doesn't mean you couldn't have been successful in New York or Chicago or Boston or Paris or whatever, because you're an incredible uh, talent and a cocktail of passion and drive. One of the things that comes through in all of your, um, in all the recipes and all of the writing and all of the appearances is how authentically centered you are as a Mainer. As much as you were restless, you somehow fought that restlessness from the time you came back with your little child, who's probably not such a little child anymore. 18 years old now. <laughs> <on adult. laughs> wow. Wow. The fun begins. Wow. And you brought into your kitchen all sorts of people who also didn't come with expectations of outside world and outside restaurants. Talk about that decision. I'm, I'm sure some of it was just organic, but some of it, you made decisions. Yeah, I mean, we're a restaurant run by all women. Um, we do have one great man who works here, who's TJ, who, who's our dishwasher. It happened sort of by an organic accident but something I feel it was just meant to be. Um, When I pitched this idea of opening this restaurant in the middle of nowhere, I was just coming out and actually still in the thick of this just terrible divorce. I'd lost everything. I'd lost my home. I had lost my first restaurant. I'd even lost custody of my son. 
I was freshly out of rehab from a prescription uh, drug addiction. And I wasn't the best candidate where you thought that this would be a successful solution. Like how could a girl who has all of this going on in her life open up a business in the middle of nowhere? And so I was a little deflated about it, but I felt it in my gut that this was my burning just way to just find a, a new life and, and make a new home. How do you advertise for help when you're a mess yourself? So the only people who I felt comfortable asking to come and work for me were my friends. So it started out as just girlfriends coming and hostessing and, and waiting tables and working in the kitchen. And then from there it evolved. And when we needed more help, they reached out to their friends. And, um, and now we were just this community of women who are best friends and are really just like family. I mean, you put women together and you can make big things happen. So I, I believe in that for sure. I believe in that. And I, I can see that. And I can imagine the strength that comes from having all of those people who aren't necessarily using you as a stepping stone to get to some other place, yeah. but are really there for everything that they can do for you. Would you recommend other people go to cooking school? Ooh, God, that's a good one. Um, I mean, why not? I mean, I kind of wish that I had for, for a very long time that I could go and, and, get all those resources and learn as much as I could. But, you know, kind of at the end of the day, I'm, I'm almost glad that I didn't because it, it allowed me to, to discover my own self as a cook, as opposed to going to school and being taught that this is the way things should taste. And this is the way things should come together that I had to do what my dad taught me, figure it out. I think I really became a more authentic and a better cook through self-discovery I don't know that that would work for everyone, but for me, it was what I had. I've always been someone to use the resources that I have and make the best of it. And I'm really kind of celebrating that I didn't end up going to school, even though for a while I felt deflated about it. I really think it helped shape me into being my authentic, better self. You are such an authentic person. It's, it's just a joy to talk to you. It's fascinating to me that even somebody who's had the kind of success that you've had in the last couple of years still has bouts of what people call the imposter syndrome. So why do you think women are so troubled by that? I'm, I'm, men seem to like say when they're successful, like, well, of course, you know, it's, of course. And women seem to say they're going to find me out. <laughs> Maybe it's just where we're at, just sort of in the world right now, where, where we still kind of, don't feel that sort of confidence, that 100% confidence where we're still questioning ourselves. We're finding our ways to rise. But, but I also think that it's good to check in and question yourself because if you didn't question yourself, it would just mean that, that you thought you were the best at everything. I think that just turns you into the wrong person that you don't want to be. If you think you know everything, then you stop trying to learn and you stop trying to grow and you stop trying to be that better person. I'm always going to come at myself and be my worst critic and give myself a hard time. So, because we're never going to be perfect, right? So we got to keep, got to keep giving ourselves a little bit of a hard time. You might be close to perfect. I don't, <laughs> my guess is that there are a couple of hundred people listening to this conversation who think you're pretty close to perfect. You'll find out all the imperfections. There is an incredible joy that comes through you when you're in the kitchen, when you're doing flowers and you're doing things. At what point did you feel like it was the joy, it was the hobby, it's the work? How do you sort of round that triangle? 
it took me a while, I think, to actually understand that food was my love and my passion because I grew up in a diner and um, I feel like for so long, I just wanted to run away. I wanted to get away from food. I didn't want to have anything to do with the diner. I wanted to leave this rural place. I wanted to go to the big city and mm. I'll never forget. I've said this, but luckily I don't think my dad has ever watched any of these to, to hear this secret, but I was applying for college. I applied to Northeastern and that was where I really wanted to go because I just wanted to get a, the heck away mm. from freedom and go to Boston. And I applied to the University of Maine in Orno and I got accepted to both, but I got a full boat scholarship to University of Maine. And my mother told me, she said, if you want to go live your dreams, you better rip that up right now and never <laughs> show your dad because he'll make you go to UMO. And so I did. So he still doesn't know that um, I got a full boat to UMO and I went to Northeastern <laughs> instead um, because I, I just really wanted to, to get the heck away from here. And I wanted to get away from food. And it took a bit when I came back pregnant with my son, moved back in with my parents, feeling deflated. And I started working at my dad's diner again. And slowly I started just to find these, these little ways that food was actually, I'd find these moments where it like touched my heart or made me feel good inside. And I think you'll find that through the book. You'll, the book is, can be very dark, um, but all the moments that are, that are talked about food are these like luscious, heartwarming moments that you realize how much food has sort of been my salve and my happiness and these moments that have got me through something that I finally started to recognize, not until I was 30 years old, that like, hey, wow, I might love food and I might be actually kind of good at it and maybe I should give it a go. So it's been a, a little bit of a half a life process to, to get there. Well, it's so fascinating because the first part of your story where you're kind of stuck in food. I mean, you're helping your dad. You enjoy it because you're a little kid helping your dad. It's also hard work and kind of, you know, hot, sweaty, greasy work, as we all know that kind of work is. Um, but it's kind of like, yeah, this is what I do. And that's the last thing I want to do. And finding the little bits of like, oh, I'm kind of loving this. It's just fascinating to read about. I mean, when I read that whole section after you'd come out of rehab and you're living in a little shack before you move into the Airstream in sort of the back 40 of your parents' house, which could have been the most soul-crushing moment. I mean, I imagine sometimes it was the most soul-crushing moment. And you, you kind of picked up again and you started doing these dinner parties. What did you call them in the book? They are supper clubs. I mean, you had to be discovering your joy in that process as much work as it was. Yeah. Cooking kept me going. I mean, it really did. It was the, it was the one bright spot in my life when things were, every time things were dark, I could always find joy in the kitchen. I was always finding joy there. And, and it, it really part of, part of cooking saved me. Do you, or did you read a lot of other people's cook? books and memoirs and do you consume a lot of the outside world to know what they're going or just kind of keep your mind unpolluted I didn't read a lot of memoirs um I did I, I used to read a lot of cookbooks um especially when I, I was working at a kitchen supply store which is I describe in the book is like the best candy store you could ask for as a cook and on Sundays it would be quiet so if there weren't customers I, I could look through rummage through like all the cookbooks and read anything I wanted to. So every cookbook was just at my fingertips that I could thumb through and, 
and read through and enjoy. So I would just devour those. I used to collect all the Martha Stewart magazines and pull out all the little recipes in the back. There were these perforated <laughs> for recipes and I'd make a little box and I'd put them together and, um, you know, dream up these dishes in my mind. And, and that's where I was finding like bits of joy and inspiration. And when you see those moments and you can feel them in your heart and your soul, it's like, I just started to grab onto them and go, wow, this is bringing me joy. Wow. Can you imagine? And now Martha Stewart wants you to be her, her next best friend. Yes. <laughs> she called yesterday. She's like, can I come to dinner? I was like, we're not open, Martha. And you have to send a postcard. <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. You and your husband have started this fundraising organization for your local community to feed the hungry. How does everybody in Freedom, Maine think about a uh, little Aaron French has become big Aaron French. <laughs> um, that's a good question. I, I, I've never really asked them that, what they think <laughs> about that. Um, we, are, we are pretty um, ecstatic about this. We do have our postcard reservation. It's a, kind of like a lottery system because the restaurant has just become too popular. And we started to think of like, how could we use this platform of fame here in the middle of nowhere to, to do some good? So this year we made a, um, a suggestion that if you're going to send in your postcard for a chance, why don't you donate a dollar or two or five or whatever you want to this, this cause that we've picked, which is a, um, a local um, nonprofit that takes, uh, they purchase food from local farmers, which are the farmers that we work with here at the restaurant. And then um, they get that food directly into food pantries and these give and take boxes and give and take tables. And we launched this on Sunday evening. And as of now, it's still, they're still pouring in. We've raised over $248,000 for local food for our, our rural community. So we're all kind of freaking out. Texts are coming in right now. And it's all that, that emoji with the head exploding. Of, of, <laughs> like we're just so it's over the top. Um, we're pretty thrilled about it. It's so great. It's so great. You're such a creature where you are. And I mean that a creature in the best possible sense. You're the, you're the, you know, the, the bulb that, that grew this beautiful flower. What kind of pressure would it take to get you to be, to expand more from 40 seeds to 60 seeds? You've got to be under a lot of wow. people who I, suggest that you should. I don't know. It would have to be a torture. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't think you can't talk me into it. I've, I've really put my feet firm on the ground of recognizing what we've maxed out at here. You know, we seat 48 people and it really is the magic sweet spot. It's what the kitchen can handle. It's what we can handle. And it's really the sustainable beauty of like, that's what we can sustain here and, and not feeding into more, 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 which can be so like American. Like I've had plenty of people. I had someone once even send me a business plan saying, this is how you should run your business. And this is how you should do things. So I was like, thank, thank you very you. much, sir. I'm really happy with the way it is. And I'm sorry you can't, you know, can't get in. And it's not easy. Really. I'm really digging my heels into this is what we're doing. This is how I'm going to live my life. And um, and, and being firm and true to that conviction of, of why would I change anything right now? I worked hard to get right here to this beautiful moment. And if anything, I'm working on maintaining it and just making it better and giving back and moving forward and no airport kiosks and no pot and pan lines at target. And yeah, you know, I don't know, we'll see where it goes, but it's not going to go in that direction. I promise you that. <laughs> Well, you've done so much to empower women, even in this conversation. What keeps coming back is how how solid you are on trusting yourself. 
I wasn't born like that. It's, I think that's a lifelong, that takes a bit. It takes a bit to build confidence and to build trust in yourself and test yourself and to believe in yourself. I don't know. Actually, my son was born believing in himself from day one. So maybe people are like that. He's just so calm and comfortable and cool and who he is. And I was like, dude, I've been working for 40 years to like get to that place where you are. Some people don't find it in their lifetime. So it's constant work and maybe harder for some than others. So I'm, I'm continuing to work hard at it, but... You're clearly succeeding in working hard at it. And I'm just imagining that there are a lot of other women listening here and probably reading your book and eating your food and reading the stories about you thinking, how do I still myself to listen to myself to really, because you had, it's easy if life is easy. Nothing in your life was easy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's harrowing. I mean, I kept reading the book thinking, it can't get worse. <laughs> it can't get worse. Does it feel meteoric, your success to you? Or does it just feel like, you know, meal at a time? I think sometimes maybe I don't truly understand it. My husband always laughs at me. He gives me a hard time because I'll say something. And he'll be like, no, you do understand who you are, right? Or, you know, I always will be like, that'll never happen. Then he's like, well, that happened. And then this happened. And I try to just go with the flow and keep being mean. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's really nice to live in freedom and feel like I could just be me. Um, one of the, one of the, the people on the, the webinar wants to know if you cook with your family and is that fun or do you have to like dominate in the kitchen? Wow. I just came into work today and I was just completely moaning to um, a couple of the ladies. And I was like, Oh my God, if I don't cook, no one eats at my house. This is so frustrating. It's like, all I want to do is go home and have someone cook me a burger. Can we please? Um, I need to train Michael up a little more to help out with that. I do cook at home. Probably not every, I, I know everyone probably thinks that I go home and make these fancy dinners. I don't like, I did have burgers last night and I'm not going to lie the other night at nine 30, I was like, I haven't eaten. So I had microwave dinner. <laughs> I do that to myself a lot frequently. So there's no, like, I, I don't cook fancy for myself. If I'm home alone, I'll eat popcorn and half an avocado and call it a day. But, um, for me, when I really put my love and passion into things, I don't do it for myself. I do it for other people. Like that's where my joy is, is setting the table and making a delicious meal for people that I love. And I'll have a granola bar. <laughs> Incredible. You are such a special kind of leader. Do you ever think about that? That you have sort of a, a prescription for leadership in your kitchen, in your life, in the way you present yourself in the world? I'm slowly starting to digest it and figure it out. When I get into work, I just put my head down and sometimes I, I don't raise it up to go like, oh, what? And where? I mean, I, I literally, in the old days when the restaurant was open, I would, after the staff would leave on a Saturday night, I go sit in the corner and just like look at the place and go, wow, like what did we just do? I just feel like I went through this complete whirlwind this week of, of dinners and like, look at this space and look at this place and pinch myself and maybe have a little cry and go, my God, look what you, look what you built. Because yeah, I'm just go, go all the time to, I don't sit around and go, Oh, look at you. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to digest. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, you have to look at yourself and look what you've created in the restaurant and in the book and in the, the way that you are in the world and just be blown away. Well, I, well I, you should be blown away. <laughs> I don't get blown away on myself really easy. Um, mm -hmm. My husband's very supportive, but I hope that it is a, an American story of building something from scratch and imperfection and falling down and fighting and believing in dreams and trusting your gut 
And I hope it gives other people hope and inspiration to live out their good dreams and, and also not feel like you have to go to New York or LA to live out a dream. That the fact that I did it right here in my hometown of the middle of nowhere, it really speaks to what you can do personally and you can do it anywhere. I've learned this lesson of, I lost my first restaurant and I literally thought you're done. And I'll never forget that day. The locks were changed and everything changed. And I just thought, I believed that those walls defined me, that that space and that place, because I lost that space, that everything was over. And it took me that full summer of doing Airstream secret suppers, traveling to farms and barns and greenhouses and orchards to make dinners. And then I realized I pulled it off and I was like, those walls didn't matter. It was me. It was what I was bringing to the table. So the same thing goes for here. And I've learned that lesson all over again with COVID of here again, I've created this beautiful space and I'm within these walls. And then I lost it all over again after the pandemic. And so what do we do? We moved outside. We started doing beautiful outdoor dinners. And again, it was like the lesson of what are you going to bring to the table and, um, and not letting anything else or anybody else define you but yourself. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. This podcast is supported by the Hunger to Health Collaboratory a cross-sector leadership initiative dedicated to reducing the health consequences of hunger. With generous support from Stop and Shop, Hunger to Health Collaboratory convenes partners across sectors to advocate for health equity and food security. For more information, visit hungertohealthcollaboratory.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 